I think the problem with medicine, here's another problem. It's too paternalistic. The doctors think that they're the only ones who can really handle returning patients back to patients. And actually, patients are pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And in their 15 minutes, they're not going to be able to learn everything to relay this in a very efficient fashion. So I think we need to engage patients to take them, uh, have them take more responsibility so that they actually are part of their own health care. Yeah. And so I I think we don't, yeah, I, I think we get them more involved. I think it would solve a lot of problems that exist now. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. As listeners of this podcast know, innovators build our healthcare system, but they also disrupt it. My guest today, Mike Snyder, is a big believer that our care systems need a serious overhaul. As an author and principal investigator at Stanford and a serial entrepreneur, Mike has a lot of insight into the industry. He's founded or co-founded nine health tech companies and today serves on the board of many more. Notable among these companies include Presenalis, Sensomix, and Protometrics. And today, he tells me why the healthcare system may be doing us all a disservice by not relying on us. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining me this morning or this afternoon, actually. That's great to be here. And so I'm so excited. Uh, I know Kim Meredith uh, from SFGH Foundation connected us. So I've been really uh, excited to learn more about the work that you do. And maybe we get to give us a little bit of a background of what you do at Stanford and what are you excited about? Yeah, no. So what we're all about is big data and health. Um and so I'm a believer that the healthcare system's broken. After just hearing your story, I'm even more convinced. Um, we think it's broken in many, many different ways, but clearly one of them is that we're very focused on treating people when they're ill as opposed to trying to keep people healthy. And so what we've been doing is, uh, my background is we, we've started looking at things at a systems level, first around biology, but now around health. And so we do deep profiling of people. We sequence our genome. We do deep molecular profiles, what's called the ohms, so <laughs> people's transcriptome and proteome, meaning all their transcripts and proteins and metabolites and even their microbiome, all these things we measure out of people. And these days, we do a ton with wearables as well, these smartwatches and rings. And so, we're. but what's special is we're, we're doing deep data, but what's extra special is that we're doing it longitudinally. So, we actually follow people over time while they're healthy, and then we'll take different, um, you know, deep additional samples when they get ill, for example, if they get a viral infection or other events that come along. And and so we're trying to see if these new technologies like genome sequencing, deep data, and these days wearables, actually all the above, can be used to better manage people's health. And so with a project we started a number of years ago, actually it's uh, 12 if you count on me, it's nine if you count most others, uh, we've been following a group of smallest group, 109 people for all this time while they're healthy. And believe it or not, just from the first three and a half years, we had uh, almost half of them, 49, learned something pretty important about their health pre-symptomatically. So we would catch people with early cancer, 
other two people with serious heart issues. And no one technology did it. Sometimes it was a genome sequencing predicted something was wrong. Uh, like in my case, I was predicted to have diabetes and actually got diabetes during the course of the study. Another case was a heart a heart condition was picked up from the genome. Other people was other technologies like imaging or some of the molecular measurements we were making. Uh, sometimes it was the wearables. So no one technology did it. And so we're, we're big believers at actually taking uh, you know deep data on people is a much better picture. And in fact, one analogy I like to use is that um, basically, if you think about people's health as a you know fifteen hundred piece jigsaw puzzle, the way we do it today, we take about ten pieces. And I think we should be taking at least a thousand so we can get a much clearer picture of people's health. Yeah, no, I I, I like the idea of how we should think about how to take care of people when they're healthy so that we can have a heads up and then so you can prevent them. And you, one of the things that you mentioned is that I feel like when I hear it, like, oh my God, how many things that we have to track and how can you make it practical? Because, you know, even wearing wearable, at some point you can't wear everything and then you'd be like, are we overkill? And is this really pragmatic? Does it make sense? And why is it Makes sense. So to me, the answer is absolutely. You cannot have enough information, but it's how you manage and return that information that you're you're referring to. That is a big deal. You can't overwhelm people to just ignore it. Uh, but basically, so what I described is a research project. Uh, obviously, we're in our lab. We <laughs> do very very deep data dives because we don't know for sure what technologies are going to be the most powerful. The re- you know, some of them are very expensive, some of them are cheap. What's the best value per dollar, if you will? And so um, by exploring this at the research level, we can figure all this out, see which ones are doing what in terms of sensitivity for conditions, in terms of cost, in terms of ease, too, just being able to do some of these assays at scale. And so this project I describe, even these 109 people, it costs millions and millions of dollars, believe it or not. We've learned a ton. And then uh, what I'm a believer in, it probably relates to this podcast, which is that I'm a believer academics are great at research. We're really good at discovery and proof of principle. We're absolutely terrible about scaling. And so when we come up with something useful, we spin it off as a company. So I've founded 15 biotech companies now over the years. And, and as an example from this deep data dive, one of the first companies we founded was a company called Personalis. It's a genome sequencing company. And within a year, even though we had set up the Genome Sequencing Center at Stanford, within a year, my company was just way better than our lab because, again, a company digs in and does this. They just do it so much better, and they're quite phenomenal now. And so other companies, we spin off something called QBio that basically is doing deep data dive, but it's not the research project I described to you. Mm-hmm. It's actually uh, a commercial version. of It's medically relevant deep data, if you will, including, you know, getting genetic information, including getting uh, a lot of these deep molecular measurements, but they also do whole body imaging. We can come back to that, but whole body MRI. And so the net result is that they're, they're getting a deep data dive. And just like what I described for you for the research project, uh, within the first year, they had uncovered a lot of things pre-symptomatically, like early pancreatic cancer, for example, they found in one person, which, you know, you never find early. And they only did it because they're screening people early pre-symptomatically. And uh, they've had ovarian cancer. And a number of these things they picked up 
again, through these multi, these deep data dives. And usually it's not just one technology that tells you something's off. It could be, you know, imaging says something might not be right, but then when you combine it with the molecular measurements, like in our lab project, we noticed somebody had a large spleen and then we saw some blood markers that were up and said, oh, something's off here. And then follow-up made it very, very clear that they had early lymphoma, actually. We caught this just by, again, doing doing these screens with big data on people while they're healthy. Mm-hmm. And so to your point that we're overloading people, you can bring the information back. The way we organize information now, if you've ever looked at your medical record from Epic, I don't know if you've done that, <laughs> but it's a disaster. The, the information is not put back in any useful fashion. Even the doctor has to look at this and gets it back in a fashion that's not useful. I mean, they don't organize it and, and in, in a way that you or your physician can understand. And so we actually had some physicians look at what we were doing in QBI and said, why aren't we doing this? This is crazy. <laughs> because they organize it around themes like cardiovascular and things like that, that you can take a look at that and say, oh yeah, these things aren't quite right or these everything's looking great, you look healthy. It's very easy to see when it's all organized properly. And we don't do that now, which is amazing, right? Because I'm pretty sure a couple of smart undergrads could do the whole thing, could reorganize that into a useful fashion. So anyway, this is another example of how the system's broken. We're so used to this existing system that we're not putting together a proper one. So I, I liken it kind of to like driving a car, where you have a dashboard on your car, you have sensors all over your car, uh, and then when something goes off, they relay it to the front. And that's something you can keep track of. But you're right. You don't want to track every little sensor, every little moment, or yeah. it will overwhelm you. Uh, and that's how I see it. And I, I think that's on the data front, on the dashboard side. But I think as a patient, right, if you're yeah. saying like you got the genome being tracked and your sleep is being tracked and all so many other things being tracked, and like how do you get there? Because the last thing you want to be, you get all the perfect data, but you spend every week in going to some office to get your blood drawn or get all those things, because that is not practical either. I think that's going to change. First of all, I think wearables are going to become commonplace, or maybe it'll be implantables in the future. But you may or may may not know, but uh, 20% of the U.S. population, 50 million people, have a smartwatch or a ring, mostly smartwatches. And that these are health monitoring devices. And you may or may not know, we set up an early COVID test actually around this. In fact, to back up the way we got into this is that I actually figured out my Lyme disease of all things from a smartwatch and a pulse ox, so this thing you put on your finger to measure oxygen levels. And it was clear in my case that my Heart rate had elevated my blood oxygen drop, what seemed to be for no good reason. <laughs> so I knew something was up. I was, pre- again, uh, not symptomatic. And then later, I got a fever off and on. But uh, I was first alerted by my smartwatch and pulse ox. And, and later went to a doctor, and, and he actually drew blood, said I, yeah, I had certain immune cells up, and I had a bacterial infection. Uh, and and he wanted to give me penicillin, and I said, no, I should take doxycycline because I suspected it was Lyme because two weeks earlier I had been in a place in rural Massachusetts where there's a lot of Lyme-infected uh, ticks there. So uh, bottom line is, yeah, he was in prescribing suboptimal medication, and he did give in, but he wasn't happy when I first suggested this. I did warn him ahead of time it might be Lyme. Anyway, when I got back, I, I was traveling. When I got back, I, I took it for two weeks, but I was, in fact, Lyme positive. 
which we could test. And I'd given blood before that was negative. So I'd seroconverted during mm-hmm. that time. So anyway, the, the point out of all that is that I self-diagnosed. And I think that's going to be part of the future. And if you think about medicine now, right, you are counting on a doctor. You make a 15-minute visit while you're healthy every few years usually. And when you're younger, it's even more spread out because you think you're invincible. Uh, And so you, and it's just natural, right? I rarely went to the doctor when I was young. And so what's happening is that we're not getting measured when we're healthy. We wait till something goes wrong and and that can be catastrophic. So I think we need to be doing is wearables then turn out to be a pretty cheap way to do this at scale, I think. And I think medicine in the future is not going to be go visit a doctor for most things, I think it's going to be pricking yourself and mailing in tests, mailing in samples, like little blood pricks and getting back uh, a report. At some level, you'll be able to do it at home too with self-monitoring. And I can see that being done every week and uh, uh, and and in a very f- uh, simple fashion to execute. That is, say, get up in the morning, much like you brush your teeth. Here's something worth thinking about. You know, we brush our teeth routinely. We just take that for granted, right? That's preventative medicine for your teeth. <laughs> and we don't do that at all for the rest of our body. And, and it's like, huh, why not? So I, I am a believer we should be, yeah, have these devices that will help monitor us. And then if something is off, uh, you know, you don't freak out. You go in and get further tests to see what's going on. And, and I, I think it can be all distilled on a very simple thing. Your mirror can show you your health readouts, much like your passion. You know, car dashboard tells you how much gas you have, and yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I, 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 I always, you know, I told my son this also. It's also, I think, human. We don't like to think that we're going to get sick, and we are all invisible. And then we go to the doctor when things go wrong. But I think, you know, I, I felt like sometimes we need to be in tune with our body, and not everybody can be. And having this devices can help. I mean, I have a good example. Uh, one of our good family, good friends, and he was one of the few survivors of pancreatic cancer because he detected early. And I think it helped because he's really in tune with his body and he noticed really quickly. I think one of the things, he, he he was diagnosed when he was 60 and he lived until 94 actually. Wow. And so he always get invited to a pancreatic cancer society because there's not many survivors. And right. He found that first time he he noticed on his stool, his stool looks different. And then he went to see the doctor. So, you know, right. So that's what I'm saying that I think having these devices, it allow people who are not so focused on your body to kind of figure it out for you rather than. Yeah, no, and that only, I think, illustrates what I've been saying. So I, I, I would totally agree. And I mean, I think you hit a very interesting topic. You know, one of the things we're doing through bio, I mentioned is whole body MRI. You go to any physician today and tell them you about doing whole body MRI on healthy people. They say, absolutely not. That's a bad thing. Everybody has, you know, nodules. And I say, well, that's not the point. Yes, everybody has nodules. Women have them in their ovaries, men in their prostate, 100% guaranteed. The question is, do you have any growing nodules? And the only way to know that is to do longitudinal samples, sample people periodically and see if any of them are growing. Because what happens now is if you get measured, some, say something pops up, maybe maybe you do get a little bump somewhere or, or you're not feeling well and they do a scan on you, a whole body MRI, they will see nodules. 
And they won't know if they're new ones that have just popped up because you just got cancer or if they were there all the time. So it's a disaster. Whereas if you had a baseline scan, you would absolutely know. I have nine nodules that I've identified with a certain resolution of MRI, and they're there and they're not growing, and that's good for me to know. But if any one of them takes off or if a new one forms that seems to be growing fast, I want to know about it sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's also like a balance, right? Like the cost to do MRI all the time and for make it as a part of your, I don't know, ongoing process. I, you know, mammogram for women of, of 50 and they do it every year. Yeah. And I think also when you do MRI, people obviously like the, you see the nodules and different patients react differently. And I think I wonder, you know, there's all this and how do you manage that? How do you change that? so that everybody it's can adopt. Yeah, it's managing expectations. It's being honest. With it. I think the problem with medicine, here's another problem. It's too paternalistic. Uh, you know, the doctors think that they're the only ones who can really handle returning patients back to patients. And actually, patients are pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. the, and in their 15 minutes, they're not going to be able to learn everything to relay this in a very efficient fashion. So I think we need to engage patients to take them, uh, have them take more responsibility so that they actually are part of their own health care. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think we don't, yeah, I, I think we get them more involved. I think it would solve a lot of problems that exist now. I mean, if you think about what's going on in diabetes, right, 9% of the U.S. population is diabetic, 33% pre-diabetic. And those numbers are going up. And by the way, the pre-diabetic, 70% of those are going to become diabetic. So this is a disaster worse than COVID because people down the road are going to have all kinds of health issues because of diabetes. And again, these numbers are just skyrocketing. They're by 2050, the numbers will be way higher. So we've got to get these things under control. And the only way to do it is get it under control while they're healthy. Don't wait till mm-hmm. they're diabetic. And so we've got to start early. We've got to, yeah, work on better on prevention programs, in my opinion, screen people while they're healthy and and you know, get them to take care of themselves and get them engaged. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I am a big proponent of, I always tell this to my son, especially after my husband's situation uh, when he died of an undiagnosed of heart disease, um, is that you need to advocate for yourself. You need to understand about, because you, you spend 24-7 with your body. So you know more what you feel, what you experience compared to the doctor who see you only for five minutes. Right. But I think you also rely on, not everybody ha- are equipped to right. make that. That's what that we Because they understand it. So. <laughs> I'm going to start with wearables. I, I think we can change the whole thing. You mentioned how whole body MRI is really expensive. That will become dirt cheap, and all this stuff's going to be dirt cheap in the future. You may or may not realize we're about to hit a $100 genome, uh, whereas it used to be $1,000 just recently. And so this stuff's going to be affordable for everyone. And then it's how do we execute it properly to keep people healthy. And one thing that's basically there right now are the wearables. I think they're not expensive. They can reach uh, nearly the entire planet, (laughs) Uh, because of you know cloud-based computing. And uh, what's kind of cool is you may not know, but 3.8 billion people on the planet have a smartphone. 
The majority of people have a smartphone. And if you compare that with a smartwatch, you have a health monitoring device for most of the planet. Because as I mentioned before, we can detect outlying stress events from infections, things like that. So COVID, for example, I didn't really get into this, but we can actually pick up COVID in our real-time detection uh, three days prior to symptom onset, a median of three days. Uh, and that we think is super powerful, right? You're not spreading then this thing around. And it's it's a, it's a system we've set up on a smartphone and it's scalable to the whole planet. It does, it's not specific for COVID. Other illnesses will set off these alerts, but also mental stress will set off these alerts. We think that's a good thing to learn too. I think we can, I think we can ultimately separate out mental stress, by the way, from respiratory viruses and, and from Lyme disease. I think we can separate all these out with the kinds of signals we get from wearable. And so in the future, we'll be able to do early detection of disease, I believe, quite easily with fairly inexpensive technologies like sensors uh, coupled to our smartphone and, and cloud-based computing. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And uh, I personally think we'll be developing AI, you know, personalized AI algorithms around people. We've done that for me, as you mentioned. We have a lot of data on me, and I am an outlier. You can't see me out there, but I'm wearing four smartwatches, and I use all kinds of devices. But, uh, yeah, and you don't need that in the future. In the future, it's going to be one wearable, like a smartwatch. Maybe it's an implantable. Uh, together with some home sampling, and that'll cover a lot of your health for early detection of disease, I think. Yeah. Tell me, like, you know, I remember when, when Fitbit came or or now it's transforming, uh, people were saying, like, I, I know already how many steps I, I walk. It's almost like the people who are healthy, they track them. And the people are who are not healthy, they usually are not either because they're not interested or because they don't have access to it. And how do we address that? Yeah, well, I think when Fitbit, Bits came out as you first and, and correctly pointed out, people put them on and three months they figured out their habits. Uh, you know, once you people have pretty simple routines and, you know, they know how far they're running and they learn all that from the Fitbit, what their heart rate does. And then they throw the watch in a drawer and there are studies that show just what I said. People wear them three months typically and not longer. Uh, and what I think is powerful and one of the reasons we're pushing this so hard is that we can use these for disease detection. Uh, for following health and seeing if you're having a healthy profile. And I hope that will be transformative. And as to go back to the car analogy, you don't drive your car around without a dashboard. Why would you? You've got to know if you're <laughs> running low on gas or speeding or the engine light's going to come on. Uh, but yet here we are as humans, which I would argue is, are, are more important as, than cars. We're counting only on our internal sensors, which are kind of slow compared to these, you know, Fitbit monitors and things like that, they're much more sensitive. And so they can actually catch this stuff early. And I think as we show the utility of this, I'm hopeful 
that they will spread and become more powerful. We haven't talked about another kind of device, uh, continuous glucose monitors, which turn out to be very eye-opening. I don't know if you've ever worn one, but they're really quite powerful. When, uh, and you know, Again, we have a lot of pre-diabetics and diabetics running around who are showing very, very strong glucose dysregulation. So they'll eat a meal and their glucose will spike out of control. And these devices are powerful, not only because they pick that up, we discover a lot of normal people are spiking just as much as diabetics, normal glucose, normal people. But uh, we also um, uh, could see what you know, foods are actually doing this. And it turns out different people spike to different foods. Some people spike to bananas, others to pasta, others to nearly everybody spikes to rice, but some more than others. Um, and so we, knowing this turns out to be really powerful because you can easily see what foods you like and what foods are spiking you. And you can take the foods you like that don't spike your glucose and try and avoid those that you like, but do spike your glucose and substitute something else. And now they're AI uh, mechanisms, and I, I uh, mentioned we spin off companies. Once you realize how powerful these this continuous glucose monitors were, we started a company called January AI, and that's what they do. They actually um, put these on people. We have we have programs. The hard part is actually getting people to change their behaviors. We have some behavioral um, training programs, if you will, that are associated with this this continuous glucose monitoring. Uh, to actually try and improve people's glucose control. And, it, uh, you know, uh, we've just launched a company and set up our programs, and it seems to be going quite well. So I think this is going to be standard stuff in the future. These things are going to be dirt cheap, these continuous glucose monitors. They're very, very powerful, I'll tell you. If you do wear one, uh, and you'll see what spikes you, it will modify your behavior just seeing this. I think, uh, yeah, instant information that you can do something about it, that makes behavior change easier doesn't mean yeah. always the same time <laughs> drink, drink a mcdonald's shake and watch your glucose spike up in real time i kid you not it's pretty pretty eye-opening yeah yeah I, yeah I with one person he was a um new york times reporter he said i thought i was eating the healthiest lunch ever i had salmon on salad every single day for lunch uh and then i you know put on my glucose monitor wouldn't you know that my my lunch was spiking my glucose through the roof. And it turns out it was the balsam vinegar sauce he put on top that had sugar in it, right? And by once he saw this, he said, well, all I do is leave out the sauce, right? And everything's healthy. So, uh, and that was true for me. I used to eat pulled pork sandwiches, which I really liked. And I watched my <laughs> glucose go over 300. And somebody, I was showing this to somebody, he said, Mike, everybody knows <laughs> has sugar and it spikes your glucose. I said, I had no idea. In hindsight, all the stuff is obvious, but most of us don't know it. And I wonder it tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah. I think so, it's it's a funny how we can change our behavior when the data is right in front of us, when we make the decision. I mean, I was just giving an example. That's what we got to do for everyone, I think. Back yeah. to your earlier point, we've got to make the data in a form that people can recognize. And, and another example I like to use is a pathology report, right? You don't show the patient the slide, the stained slide to see whether there's a tumor or not. You give them back a simple report. That's what you give your physician who goes over it with the patient to say, <laughs> you know, here we did the stains, here's what we learned. And it's all presented in a simple, understandable fashion. And I think that's true of all these data. Yes, we can collect a lot more data. You can't flood people's brains with it, but you can present it back in a simple form 
look, we know you have metabolic issues and here's what we learned by this profile. <laughs> these <laughs> things are off and these things are great. Maybe you can work oops, on these certain things a little more and these keep doing whatever you've been doing. It's working great. Yeah, yeah. So I want to uh, um, change a little bit, going to different, I mean, you mentioned about the company Generate AI. Can you yeah. tell us more about it? Yeah, so it's a glucose monitoring company. It relates to what I was just telling you. We started putting these devices on normal people and pre-diabetics and discovering that, that a lot of these folks had very severe glucose dysregulation. And so uh, very eye-opening. And we said, well, you know, we need to get this technology out to the masses. It's not that expensive. And usually, you know, technologies are a little bit expensive when you first get involved. And, and so you know they're going to get cheaper. And now there's a whole bunch of, there's, there's two dominant players that make these devices, Abbott and Dexcom. But there are a lot of other companies that are in the space, and we'll see what comes out. But they're going to get very, very inexpensive. And the, what that means is that any person will be able, in Europe, they're over the counter. So that means any person can go purchase one of these things. In the U.S., you still need a physician, but I, I predict not for long. And so what that means is you can actually get one of these things, put it on you and see what foods are doing what to you. And so we just felt that was really powerful. Um, so I, I'm a believer that academics, they're, as I say, they're good at um, proof of principle. They're good at discovery. They're no good at scaling. Uh, companies are really good at taking something you do and, and just doing it really, really well uh, so that it can reach millions of people. And so once we saw that, you know, these monitors were very powerful for detecting glucose dysregulation and could be implemented into behavioral modification strategies, we basically felt this was uh, important to see if we could, you know, get this out to the masses and figure out the best way to do this. And so we spun off January AI uh, to do just that. They're, they used a lot of artificial intelligence uh, uh, to be able to figure out at a personal level what's going, you know, what's going to spike you. And we can, we bring in actually uh, activity monitors and things like this as well. I know it sounds complicated, but we, we can do it all behind the scenes and make predictions uh, about what's going to spike you. We have a nice food database that with G, it's called GIGL, a glycemic index, glycemic load that, uh, you know, gives you a sense about how much glucose is in each food and what it can do to you. And the combination, all these data forms we bring in and we can make food recommendations to you. Uh, you, you do do the continuous glucose monitoring to, to, you know, follow what's going on with your glucose. And we can make recommendations based on all the information we have and uh, the information we collect on you. So you wear a monitor for 28 days, and we make predictions and then uh, try to get you to modify your behavior. A good example, I like this though. This is one um, that is kind of known, but it really again becomes eye-opening. Is that we have you eat your favorite food, uh, and and uh, first thing in the morning, you'll watch it spike your glucose out of control because it always has sugar in it, so it wears some sort of carb. And then you um, next day you eat your favorite food and you walk 15 minutes after you eat your favorite food, and suddenly you'll see that spike is very much suppressed, right? Very simple test, if you will, but it's very eye-opening to say, look, I can get my glucose down a lot by just doing a simple 15-minute walk, brisk walk after I ate something. So these are the kinds of things you can do 
to try to, you know, modify people's behavior to get better glucose control. Now, I'm not going to say that that person is never going to get diabetes, but if you can push it off for a few more years, you know, that's still valuable. And mm-hmm. hopefully we'll push it off for more than a few more years for a long, long time. But, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, so you, you mentioned earlier that this is great. I think this is exciting. Um, for I think when people see what they can do to change their behavior, and feedback. I guess it's all about feedback. Right. Like you got, yeah. you got the feedback. It's like okay, this is the wrong direction. Uh, well, I and, have some other ideas too, though that will change people's behavior that we haven't talked about. I, I honestly think we need the main things that motivate people are money and family. So if we can get these technologies in to you know your your health management system, meaning your payers and your insurers who basically say, look, you'll get a discount if you get your genome sequence. I actually think you should get a discount if you get monitored better. I think then people would monitor themselves better and you would be able to keep yourself healthier, which would save the payer and the insurer a ton of money. So I think, you know, that's one way to get people motivated. Imagine you got a 10 dollar month discount to walk your 10,000 steps every day. I'll yeah. bet that motivate a lot of people, especially people who are financially challenged, right? right. I think there's a balance on that. I remember reading an article somewhere in Japan, I think, that they're really trying to control the weight of the population and they provide a lot of that incentive. But I think there's some backlash probably because people got really annoyed. I think they have to measure their waist or something. In order oh, to, well, so it's too invasive into their... Yeah, yeah. But I think there was an incentive too that if you lose weight, that you got this much of money. Got it. I think it's all about how you... Yeah, how you implement Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I I mean, it's true. What we're trying to do is make this, you know, early on, everything we're doing is clunky. Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping as we go on, this all becomes more passive monitoring or or minimal, right? You'll still need your little finger pricks. Right. You know, droplets of blood and thing. But uh, I think it can still be done in a very convenient fashion. Um, And Again, if the payoff is big, like your person who discovered early pancreatic cancer, right. uh, suddenly that I mean I, that I would assume that person will be sold on this for the rest of their lives, and I think that's to some extent true for the folks we're following, both in our research study and in our companies. I mean, we've had some pretty good anecdotes, like I mentioned our early pancreatic cancer case. There's some other cases, cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease. There were a big deal. And some of these are found in young people. We had a young person whose genome we sequenced who had a mutation in, in a, it's called a cardiop- cardiomyopathy gene, mm-hmm. if you will. And, and it turns out he had a heart. We saw this and his father died of a heart attack in his 60s and aunt had one in their 50s. And when we saw this, uh, we basically, you know, talked with him and, and sure enough, he's got a heart defect. He did an echocardiogram afterwards and, and the the bottom line was uh, he did have it. So he's on medication now. Again, all caught pre-symptomatically. Uh, and, and you know, I, I, it's possible that saved his life. Right. I, I think sometimes being a patient or, a per, I mean, at least some patient who kind of feel like they don't want to go to the doctor for every little thing because everybody's like, well, you know, you're overreacting. But, you know, again, by the time you see a doctor, it's too late. It can be, yeah. So I think having this kind of maybe easing their feeling about me being overreacting, having the device kind of, hey, look, (laughs) 
Anything that can help. I know a lot of physicians worry, oh, everybody's going to see these little blips, like all those red alerts we send off when mm-hmm. uh, somebody's heart rate gets elevated, uh, which you know could be an indicator of disease. Could be, But I actually think if you teach people, they learn how to manage it better. Right. Uh, you know, and and uh, I think we got to give credit to the person. I, I think they're they, again they have more time to think about what's going on than the physician does. So I I think they can manage their health better, quite frankly, than a physician. Physicians aren't going to go away, of course, and I'm not trying to put them away. Yeah, <laughs> I should get them to bring in more data types to be able to just better manage people's health. But I can tell you, we caught someone with AFib in our study from a wearable. We caught someone with sleep apnea with a wearable. The, and these are very, very simple things to find, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That uh, you wouldn't probably would not have been found had we not done that. In fact, certainly hadn't been found. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I know we are short on time. I have one last question for you. Uh, you have spin off a lot of companies from your work in in, in the lab and how do you do it? Oh, I don't know. It's all fun and it's all related. And again, it all to me, it all makes sense. I uh, we're again, our lab is doing a lot of research, and and these really are research problems and trying to figure all this stuff out. And then when we see something that's useful, we don't go into this trying to start a company. Although there's few people in my lab come in and say, I'm, "I want to start a company," and we'll work on that. But the main thing is we we just do the science we're doing which gets me very, very excited. And then when we want to see a way to scale it, uh, that, and we think it's useful and, and want to scale it, that's when we form the company. To me, it's an obvious transition, and it's very satisfying. Uh, and I guess that's what keeps me motivated. Uh, I, I am a workaholic, but I, I just there's no better rush in the lab than a great result, and there's no better satisfaction than seeing something cool you did get out there to scale and, and try and help you know millions of other people. And that's what we're doing with some of the companies I just mentioned. I, I, I really think they can transform. And this stuff we're doing is so cool. It really does belong to everyone on the planet. <laughs> so when you start to spin off the company, do you team up with other people who are running the company? Obviously, you're still running your lab with a lot of oh, other yeah, people. Yeah. And how do you go about that? I'm just thinking about uh, our faculty here at UCSF who are doing sure. the lab and how they can still do the research they love yet be able to scale and maybe you can share our yeah. your little so secret. The normal way to do it is I do try and team up with a business person, ideally who has experience. And, uh, and because I am a busy guy, as you point out, so they'll, you know, I know how to uh, make a pitch deck and I know how to write a business plan but it's if I've got a business person on board, they they actually usually do all that, the heavy lifting, and I can just comment on those things. And I'm there for the pitches. I'm there to help launch the company. And to be honest, I'm very active in all the companies I'm engaged in. There's a, a fair amount when you first launch it, but then it just goes into autopilot where once a week you're checking in for a half hour, an hour. It depends on the company. Sometimes it's every other week. Um, and so... Uh, and it's fun because it's spinning off of things that you're already doing. So it's keeping you abreast of the practical side of, of the same research you're doing in the lab. So I find it very satisfying that way. It, 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 it's a little busy to launch stuff at first, but you'll see it's not like it, it's never a distraction. Mm-hmm. It's all part of the same, if you will, ecosystem. Right. And I, I think you know, there's a little historical artifact where people used to think academia 
and industry. They have to be separated. And I actually think we keep them too separated. I understand why we do it. Uh, but I, I do think there's some big advantages to being able to have all these working closely. And you'll see the best partnerships actually come out as partnerships between academia and industry. They each has its strength, and neither can do what the other can do. So uh, I think when you appreciate that and you, you get very excited about each side of it, like when we spin off a company, it's very easy to stay motivated with the company because they're just doing very, very cool things. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, um, and that's a lot of fun. And so, uh, but I, I, yeah, so I guess because I enjoy it, I'm able to do it all. <laughs> yeah, no, you sounded really excited and passionate about what you do. And uh, thank you for sharing a lot of the work and your ideas and your thinking for the future for uh, improving the health of everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.